Hi, everyone, and welcome to Monday Morning 8 a.m., a podcast from Firms Consulting that goes out every Monday morning at 8 a.m. This podcast and the accompanying newsletter with any links and relevant attachments and images is prepared for Firms Consulting Insiders and Firms Consulting Slides members, our loyalty members. However, we make it available to all readers and all listeners because we think everyone can benefit from our efforts to distill out all the insights from the noise for the week. You can listen to the audio version of Monday Morning 8am by searching for Strategy Skills in any podcast app or if you want access to any of the links or any of the images or exhibits we'll talk about, go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash promo and if you put in your details, you'll get a written version of this podcast, which we send out as a newsletter. So let's get straight into this week and talk about some of the big themes, but more importantly, insights we are seeing. The first theme is strategy is hard to understand. We would like to think that by simply reading about what a company is doing, understanding the drivers of value, the levers of profits, applying a few frameworks and so on, it would be easy to understand why a company has chosen a certain path. We also would think that it's easy to understand what a company is doing and why it's doing it by simply listening to what a CEO is saying, by simply looking at the press release and investor statements put out by a listed company. The reality is that when companies communicate, they obviously want to say enough so that they please all their stakeholders, but they want to keep important pieces to themselves so they don't share it with competitors. Not everything you see about a company that's made public is what you need to know to deduce a company's strategy. A good example of this is Coty's acquisition of Kylie Jenner's cosmetics brand, which was one of the biggest acquisitions in cosmetics for a private new label. What's happened is over the last few years, big brands that relied on large advertising campaigns have been pushed aside by brands that are driven by social media, whereby someone like Kylie Jenner creates a brand and she sells it through social media, which is the only form of advertising she does. Now, when Coty made the acquisition, sales of Kylie Jenner's cosmetics brand dropped from about $375 million a year to about $125 million a year. So by the time the acquisition was made, sales had dropped by about two thirds. And in most of the media, the question has been raised, why was this brand acquired when sales were clearly slowing down? And of course, part of the criticism for Coty is that maybe they didn't do proper due diligence. And I think it's maybe a bit unfair criticism for the company because we don't know why they made the acquisition. In another space and time, we could very well say good things about Coty by saying that, you know what, they were very smart. They brought a brand which they know will grow, but they brought it when sales had been dropping so they could get a good price. So whether or not the, price, whether or not the volume or the sales has been dropping, we should consider the price paid relative to the volume and the revenue that was being acquired. But even if we look at those numbers and they make sense or they don't make sense, we still don't know why the brand was acquired. Maybe there was a deal with Kylie and Coty whereby she would help them understand how to leverage social media to drive their other properties. Maybe she would help them in other areas. Maybe Coty was making a strategic bet to block another competitor from setting up an agreement with Kylie Jenner, something they cannot say in public. 
The point is we really know why companies undertake a strategy. If you look at M&A, for example, if you follow the press, you know that a lot of big M&A decisions typically take place after two CEOs get together, find some common ground, and think that it makes sense for them to work together in some capacity. A lot of those decisions are made when CEOs get together at formal and informal events like Davos in Switzerland. But we don't know the thinking that sits behind it. We only know the thinking they choose to reveal to us. And if you think about any individual, they are driven by three things. They are driven by emotional decisions. They are worried about their legacy. They are worried about being thought of as someone not strategic, not making a difference in the industry, not consolidating, not rising profits. And they need to act to change that perception. That's the first one. The second one is they are driven by politics. Every CEO's career is on the line. Every CEO is being watched by the board, by his executive committee, by employees, and by a variety of stakeholders. Their careers are always at risk, even though they never talk about it. And every decision they take is obviously to help the company, but they want to preserve their jobs as well. There are very few CEOs who will directly do something that they know is good for the company, but it's going to hurt their careers. I've yet to see it, and I think that that would be a rare CEO. And finally, the third part that drives the decision-making of a CEO is what's known as the rational side of things. The rational side is, do the numbers stack up? Is this logical? Can I see how value can be created? And of course, about the rational side, we have to distinguish between the rational elements that are communicated to us and the rational elements that a CEO chooses not to communicate. And this is the thing you have to do whenever you read about an acquisition or a sale or a change in strategy. You've got to distinguish between what the company is saying, how the business press is interpreting it, and what the company is actually trying to do. So what is said, the interpretation and interpretation by the general reader you've got some reality that exists in the middle. And a good strategist needs to figure out what that reality is. Because if you don't figure it out, you're going to be reacting and making decisions based on what you think is happening, but it's not really happening that way. And if you look at every single decision a company makes, they make a decision internally for reasons that they know make sense to them. But that press release goes through several layers of filtering. PR teams, lawyers, each group changes what is being communicated to ensure that certain guidelines, rules, legal requirements as such are met. And what you get at the end is the very sanitized, very clean version that is chosen to be released and chosen to be communicated. But it's not the real reason why something happened. So circling back to the story, maybe it's too early to say if the Coty acquisition of Kylie Jenner's brand was a good decision or a bad decision. COVID-19 obviously plays a role. Whether it played a positive role or a negative role, we don't know. We'll only know if it is a good or a bad decision if it works relative to what Coty planned to do in the first place. If their plan was to remove some of the social media magic that the Kardashian and Jenner family has and infuse it into their brands and all the other brands in the Coty stable does well, but the Kylie Jenner brand doesn't do so well, is that a failure or is that success? So we have to think carefully about what Coty was trying to do when they went through this acquisition. And that's how you have to do all kinds of assessments of companies. It's about what they intended to do and whether they succeeded at doing it. Not what we the reader or we, the business press, thinks they wanted to do. Strategy is always hard to understand because we don't know why and how the original intent was set up. 
Now, the next big theme we're reading about is the fact that the electric car wars will be fought on the operations front. And that's the insight rather than the theme. And there's been three big announcements recently. One, several major contenders that are challenging Tesla in the Chinese automotive electric market have made plans to ramp up production. And I've looked at the cars, I've read about them, they look quite impressive, and I think competition is always good. So while I'm sure Tesla will do very well, it's good to see competition because I think it spurs all players, including Tesla, to do better, greater work. So that's good. The next big topic, the next big story, was the fact that Hyundai Motor Corporation made an announcement that they are in advanced talks, although nothing has been finalized with Apple, to build electric cars for Apple. And the other big story around electric vehicles is the fact that GM has rebranded itself as part of a greater push to show that the new GM is not wedded to the GM of the past. The new GM is going electric. Now, all these stories are about electric vehicles. And they're interesting stories. Hyundai makes an announcement to help the markets understand that it's a serious player in electric vehicles. Because my thinking about that is that what Andre was trying to show is that, look, for a long time, people have questioned how electric credentials, but we want to show you that one of the biggest names that is thinking about entering the electric space is talking to us. So we know what we are doing. And they made the right decision to make the announcement if they thought it would help them. Only they would know if it was the right decision to make. GM's rebranding again. We don't know if it's a good or bad decision, but GM knows what they're doing. And given the big push into electric, they do need to make a break from the past. They know what happened with Cadillac. Cadillac was the luxury brand, and it had been pulled down by being associated with what consumers thought were lower quality GM cars in general, and the Cadillac brand got sucked into that. The question is whether younger consumers will see the new GM and its logo as a new company versus simply GM trying to reinvent itself. And of course, all these Chinese startups serving the world's largest consumer market for electric vehicles can only be a good thing because anything developed there eventually makes itself out around the world. But what is the deep insight here? The deep insight is the discussion taking place between Apple and what I would say is a variety of electric manufacturers. For a long time, until Apple really started doing this, people thought high-end manufacturing must be done in-house. Intel is an example of that. Intel epitomized American advanced manufacturing prowess by keeping the manufacturing of semiconductors in-house. A decision they are now reconsidering because they've fallen behind in the ability to manufacture more and more advanced nanochips. What Apple has done is they've shown you you can produce precision equipment like iPhones, iPads, iMacs in China and other parts of the world by maintaining tough specifications and requirements. By talking to Hyundai and I'm guessing many other contract manufacturers, and they may even be talking to Foxconn as well, but unlikely because manufacturing cars is quite different. What they're showing us again is that it's gonna come down to the operations, the ability to build a car. What's happening in the entire electric car debate now is we all get very excited, ooh and ah, and dazzled by the latest technology and who's rolling out. You gotta think of the latest technology as a ball at the top of a hill. As that ball starts rolling down and down and down the hill, it's gaining more and more manufacturing prowess. The volumes are increasing. At a certain point, the battle for automotive leadership is gonna be fought on efficiencies, that is cost per unit car produced. You can have the most fancy technology and you can even scale it up. 
But if you can't get your unit cost of production down, you're not going to be able to play in the consumer market. Apple clearly knows this. They don't have any operational capabilities. They can't manufacture to the right price point. That's the key thing. They could probably set up a manufacturing facility in Texas. But could they get the same efficiencies and volumes at the price point they want? That's very unlikely. Whether it's Tesla, whether it's Hyundai, whether it's the guys in China, and I'm sure there's many other companies, including one of the companies we're involved in in China, which insiders can watch on strategytraining.com, is going to come down to efficiencies. Now, Firms Consulting Slides members will have access to an entire operation strategy we put together for a metals company. And what you're going to be able to see there is we put together a plan on how they can come up with a new operation strategy. And the key thing, as you can see in the two exhibits we attach to the newsletter for this podcast, and if you're listening to the podcast, go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash promo. Put in your details there, you'll get a copy of the newsletter. We break down how an operation strategy unfolds. In the two images, we show you the different things you can do to increase your return on net assets. And then we group them into growing effectively, optimizing efficiency, and stabilizing the organization. The bottom line, if you want economies of scale, you have to be big. That's about growing effectively. But as you get big, you cannot take the mistakes that you made when you were small and simply extrapolate them. You've got to become better at what you're doing. That's optimizing efficiency. And third, stabilizing the organization means you cannot have unpredictable events in your entire operating facility. An unpredictable event in a system that's working with very little inventory, short timelines as you switch production, you quickly get bottlenecks building up. So you want to limit any spikes, dips, drops, changes in the system. So those two exhibits show you the thinking how we did that for an aluminum company. Slides members can see the entire strategy from start to finish, how we would help this company think through what it needs to do to improve its operating efficiency. And the key thing, and the reason why the study is so relevant to electric vehicles companies is that when any facility is starting up, you have to distinguish between the period when it goes from being effectively a startup towards having a fully commissioned set of factories that are producing as planned. That's phase one. Phase two is once you're fully commissioned is how do you then run those facilities to get the maximum efficiency? Because if you get the maximum efficiency, you can lower your unit cost of production and obviously take that saving invested in the car or take that saving and pass it to the consumer so you can compete in price. And whether or not Tesla and so on are aware of this, I think they do, they're smart guys, is that it's going to come down to price. If you price your product too high, you can't unlock the consumer market. If you price it too low, you become a commodity. But if you price it too low and it matches the brand positioning and pricing, you can do very well. And that's where the battle is going to be fought. The next big theme, at least the next two big themes, are about China. The first theme, well, the third theme, is entitled Fear is Not a Strategy. And it's based along a lot of the thinking that's taking place about China today. Obviously, the Chinese government has done a phenomenal job in shepherding the economy to where it is today as a legitimate contender to be the largest economy in the world. And it's almost certainly going to be the world's largest economy if it hasn't already achieved that status by some adjustment to the way we measure these things. Because invariably what happens is that we go back and we say we made a mistake measuring GDP and if we did it correctly, 
these would have been the numbers so we don't know who is the largest right now by all measures by some measures we do by others we don't but the point is this as china has grown sometimes we overestimate its abilities sometimes we underestimate its abilities sometimes we overestimate it sometimes we decide we don't want to play in a sector because the chinese are too strong sometimes we underestimate them and say we can play in the sector because the chinese are never going to enter here fear cannot be a strategy you cannot make a decision not to do something because you think someone is too strong unless you are certain they are too strong and then second you are certain you cannot respond to that because you see that very often with companies when they make decisions they'll say something like company x whatever that company is is very innovative very creative the world leader in its field and because it's the world leader in its field it has a reputation for harnessing artificial intelligence the internet of thing cloud capabilities blockchains they're very good at it we're not going to compete there but what you'll find is that in every period whether it was the early 2000s whether it was just after the financial crisis whether it's post covid a few companies tend to do okay and everyone talks about them like they are perfect they overestimate their abilities and a lot of people choose not to compete with them because the general media is saying they are invincible but just a few people choose not to listen to the press and they will choose to compete against them but what this means is that for many companies and individuals who are making those decisions while they don't say it while they'll never say that their framework and their thinking involved this their strategies biggest consideration is the fear they have of a competitor they'll couch it in words like this company has is very innovative very entrepreneurial very agile but you can sum it up as we are afraid to take on this company if you have the ability to raise the capital if you have the ability to harness your employees if you have the ability to think creatively but what's stopping you from acting is you're afraid then your strategy is predicated on a principle of fear and most strategies are done that way when i was a partner senior partner as well and i'd speak to many clients and they wouldn't say it initially but if you read between the lines many of them were afraid there was a time sometime back um when i was serving a lot of financial services companies a lot of them were afraid how the american tech giants were going to come into financial services and i know of insurance companies banks development banks that chose not to enter certain markets chose not to compete in certain product lines because they were certain the american tech companies were going to do it they would never say it they would have the analysis to show otherwise but fear is what drove their strategy and the insight here is that when you are thinking about strategy and you are interpreting all those numbers you need to be aware you need to write it down somewhere that fear is going to drive your decision making that's part of your judgment the way you interpret numbers is your judgment and fear is a component of your judgment if you make a decision in strategy because you're afraid you're making a decision from a basis of fear you're approaching things from a sense of fear that's not rational thinking that's an emotive positioning and it's never going to be right yes you need to be aware of competitors you need to be scared about them but you, your strategy cannot be predicated on the idea that because i'm afraid i can't compete why can't you compete how is your fear stopping you from competing i mean maybe the solution is if you're the ceo who's afraid get a new ceo who's not afraid and then balance that bold ceo with a board who's going to check what he's doing so he doesn't squander the money but fear cannot be a component of strategy which brings us to the fourth and final theme which is the rise of china so several big things have been happening recently the chinese consumer market in most categories and industrial market in most categories is now the largest in the world when i speak to ceos whether it's now or whether it was before they haven't really understood what's going to happen to the world with china 
dominating just about every sector category market in the space of the next 5 to 30, 20 years. Everyone that I've spoken to and everyone you know, including listeners here, we've grown up in a world that was not dominated by China. We grew up in a world that all major markets, institutions, decision-making frameworks were largely driven out of the West. If you think that your company will not go through some radical change when the center of power shifts east, and if you're not preparing for this, then you're probably going to lose whatever market share you have to some competitor who is preparing for this. You must remember that every single decision made in business today is made on a set of unspoken rules and assumptions. That's a fact. One of those unspoken rules and assumptions is that we operate along, along Western guidelines, according to Western customs, and according to Western rules and regulations, with the goal of pleasing Western regulators. Our centers of excellence are in Western countries, because that's where traditionally the bastions of higher education and learning were. But what happens, for example, Hollywood, what happens when China, as it did in 2020, continues its role as the largest market for movies in the world? I think they will give up the crown in 2021, but I think it's a blip and they'll get it back soon enough. What happens in five, 10 years when the Chinese market for movies is 30% larger than the United States? How do you cast actors? Where do you shoot your movies? What storylines do you mine that are appealing to a Chinese audience? How do you get a balance? What happens if your investors are in the West, but your audience is in China, but a storyline pleases the investors in one place, displeases your audience in another place? How do you make that transition? Can you make that transition? How do you know what to do? If you are a bank that's based in Europe that serves predominantly Chinese consumers, whereby you get the majority of your profits in China, but the majority of your board, well, actually, none of your board members are Chinese. How do you reconcile that? How do you talk to the Chinese regulators when you have no Chinese people on your board? How do you, as a Western company, talk about diversity, but there are no Chinese people in major decision-making positions on your board when that's now your biggest market? Those are tough decisions companies need to make. And I don't think any business leader I've spoken to fully understands the magnitude of the change that's going to take place. China is, just, is not just going to be a division that you serve or a market that you serve through a division. It's going to become your reason for being in certain cases. And if China becomes your reason for being, how do you manage your business? Where do you manage your business? Where do you source? How do you source? We've spoken, you know, it's been in the press a long time, decoupling of supply chains. That's probably not going to happen. If anything, you will have a major supply chain tied to your largest market, and there'll be ancillary supply chains around that. People talk about a China strategy. That is incorrect. You have a strategy that's going to serve your largest market, which is going to be China one day. But to talk about having a China strategy is incorrect because it assumes you can have a normal strategy, and then maybe for 20% of your time, you focus on China. Some closing thoughts before we wrap up. I want us all to think about all those people on the front line today during COVID, fighting it out, dealing with very stressful situations, putting their lives on the line, taking a beating, going through emotional trauma, emotional suffering, every day relentlessly, without any sleep, without much thanks, and they go in and do this every day without any reprieve. Now you'd be mistaken, and, and it would be understandable if you thought I was talking about the medical frontline workers like doctors and nurses. 
I'm talking about call center staff who work for banks and just about everyone else. Because with people locked up at home and unable to do things they normally did by going in and talking to people, they now rely heavily on call centers. And the thing about call centers is that before COVID-19 came along, call center employees are treated very badly. I want you to think about the last time you called in to any support center or wrote in or chatted in. What was your underlying approach to this? For most people, the underlying approach is that they have made the decision, even though there's a mother, a father, a teenager in some parts of the world, a person on the other end, they've made the decision that they're going to be as vicious, as abrasive, as cutting as they possibly can, because they don't worry who they're talking about. They simply want whatever they want from this company, whether it's a replacement, a refund, or whatever it is. And their strategy going in is that it doesn't, they're not going to try to be nice. They're not going to try to be kind. They're not going to worry about the other person on the other line. Even though that call center employee is probably not hired by the company whose product you own, but is working through some third party, even though that call center employee is not a global expert on a bank with $100 billion of assets with branches in 30 countries, even though that call center employee cannot possibly know everything that's happening if the call center employee makes one mistake. The majority of people treat that call center employee like they're, they've deliberately messed up, like they've deliberately caused a problem, like the fact that the information you said to one call center employee was not magically transcribed and transferred to all call center employees in every single call center for this company across time and space over three months and doesn't magically show up when you call in three months later. You know, when we do interviews for any company, we always look for references. But I think what we should do is ask people to send through the transcripts for how they interact with call center and support staff. Because I think then you'd get a true sense of employees' personality under stress. When people don't want something, whether it's a product, when people don't think they can get what they want out of that product, or they think they've got what they wanted, then you see what people are really like. I remember once I was traveling with a consultant and I was more senior than them. And we were driving somewhere and this person was calling to change some flights. And I was quite appalled at the way they spoke to the support staff at the travel agency. I mean, this berated this person for no reason, unnecessary. They could have been kind. Screaming at them is not going to make it easier. And when they ended the call, they smiled at me and said, don't worry, I got what we wanted, a full refund. And I was actually shocked that this is a person who wants to work on my engagement teams. And this is the way they are treating someone who's trying to help them. I mean, how can you speak to another human being this way? Of course, that person was never stopped onto any client I ever worked with after that engagement. I always want you to think about the type of professional you want to be. You can get many things in life by focusing on what you want and caring about the person. People are always surprised at how polite I am with support center staff and call center staff because I know that they probably never hear anything good in that day. Even if someone's not doing a good job, I always tell me, you know what, you did a very good job and I hope that the people you work with, you know, understand that it's pretty tough and you'd be shocked at how nice they are to me. They'll break rules to help me. I get what I want. And without the stress of knowing I screamed at someone. Good leadership is about living the values you want to see in people around you. And the best leadership is how you act when you think no one will ever know how you've acted. 
And as always, as you know, we have many books out. We have the Strategy Journal. We have Mavis. We have Succeeding as a Management Consultant. Firms Consulting is running a special. If you buy the book and post a review on Goodreads, and if you have time and would like to do so, post one on Amazon as well, and you submit a copy of your receipt to support at firmsconsulting.com. And there is a deadline, so you should do this sooner rather than later, and you should write to support to find out the deadline. We will give you a complimentary one-month access to the accompanying video programs that go into the concepts in the book in a lot more detail. Write to support to understand all of the criteria. But as always, I hope you're enjoying this podcast series, and we will see you next week, Monday at 8 a.m. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.